The village of Capernaum, or Capernaum, depending upon your translation, it uh, actually is from a, a Hebrew word, kafar nahum, uh, the village of the comforter. That's what Nahum's name actually means. It's actually really important because, in fact, we'll find that comfort himself uh, made Capernaum his home. As best we can tell, there's no relation to the Old Testament prophet Nahum, from which the village actually uh, identifies a name. But this village was a picturesque town located on the northwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee, there in the land of Israel. Capernaum was a popular fishing village, uh, boasting some 1,500 residents, uh, historians say, by the time that Jesus walked on the earth. It had a beautiful synagogue. I've actually seen this synagogue there in Capernaum, made of white limestone. It was really the pride and the joy of this ancient Jewish community. It was also a place that had a very large Roman presence, as there was an entire Roman garrison, uh, numbering in the thousands of soldiers situated not far from, if not inside of, the region or town of Capernaum. It was your quintessential first century Jewish community nestled on the northern shore of the Galilee. But there's another important reason why Capernaum should be familiar to you and was so significant in its time, and it's this, that it was the Galilean base of operations for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus took up residence in Capernaum, and that, friends, was no incidental decision. His association and ministry with this Galilean city was actually a fulfillment of ancient Jewish prophecy. For we read in Matthew chapter 4, beginning with verse 12, that when he, that is Jesus, had heard that John had been arrested, that's John the Baptist, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, which was his childhood home, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And here's the prophecy. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Indeed, that's what happened when Jesus walked on the earth. From the time that Jesus began to preach, Matthew concludes saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And indeed it was. Jesus was about 30 years of age, we understand from Luke chapter 3, verse 23, when he began his public ministry. Now, the parallel account that Brad read for us, uh, that's Mark chapter 2, it's also the same story is found in Matthew chapter 9 and also Luke chapter 5. If you want to glance there throughout our time together this morning, it's the famous scene and story of Jesus healing a paralyzed man, a paralytic a crippled man who actually is lowered down, by, lowered down through somebody else's roof that we'll find out this morning, uh, is a story that tells us, according to Matthew chapter 9, verse 1, that Jesus, after uh, some things that happened, had returned to his own city following a preaching and healing tour around the region of Galilee. Imagine that. Imagine being a citizen of Capernaum and living just down the street from the Son of God. Can you imagine that? What that must have been like. It must have been incredible. The picture that we get from the Gospels of Jesus' early ministry, both in Capernaum and in the surrounding towns and villages, is one, you might not know this, of wild popularity. 
Jesus, the man of sorrow, is rejected by his people when he first uh, burst onto the scene in Mark's gospel. People are flocking to him. It's a powerful public ministry. Everywhere we look, Jesus is preaching and teaching, and people are pressing near to him, bringing the sick and the broken and even the dead to him in order that they might be touched and healed and even raised from the dead. No, Jesus is no ordinary man, and his ministry is no ordinary ministry. In fact, Luke's account of this story in Luke 5 verse 17 tells us that the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal. The power of the Lord was with him. So the public ministry of Christ in his preaching and in performing miracles was, in summary, the fullness of the power of God displayed on earth. Keep that in mind this morning. Each and every new encounter with Jesus bore that truth out. And we're going to look at roughly 12 of them over the next three or so months. Now, why do I start this way about the little village of Capernaum? I start this way this morning, talking a little bit about this village, this scene behind this story, before turning to unpack this amazing scene concerning what takes place inside the city of Capernaum for one big reason. If you or I were to visit Capernaum today, again, as I did back in 2013, what would you see today? You would see rubble. You would see stones. You would not really see a working village today. You would see portions of the famous synagogue in Capernaum that I referenced earlier. You can actually see a little bit of it there. You would perhaps even see what was allegedly the Apostle Peter's house there in Capernaum, where he heals, uh, Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law in an earlier story in Mark chapter 1, verse 29 and following. You, in other words, would see a city that clearly missed its chance to receive God's king. That's what you would see. Capernaum, you need to understand, was the site of so many of Jesus' miracles. It was in Capernaum that Jesus healed a centurion's servant in Matthew chapter 8, verse 5. It was in Capernaum that Jesus healed the Jewish official's son in John chapter 4, verse 46 and following. It was in Capernaum that Jesus raised Jairus' daughter to life and healed a woman with an issue of blood. A very curious note is connecting these two that 12 years uh, had been transpiring for both the woman and her issue of blood and that little girl and her life. Despite these many miracles and despite Jesus' powerful message of their need to repent of their sin amidst the dawning of Jesus' unrivaled kingdom, the people of Capernaum largely missed his coming. They largely rejected his appearing. In some way, I believe today's text, Mark chapter 2, and the paralyzed man being lowered down into the presence of Jesus of Nazareth. In many ways, he is himself a symbol of the city in which he lived, a paralyzed city gripped in unbelief and gripped in its sin, such that instead of accepting Jesus as Messiah, they rejected him time and time again. And eventually, the city of Capernaum received a judgment of Jesus. We read of it in Matthew chapter 11, verse 26. Listen to this. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? 
you will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. In other words, Sodom and Gomorrah would have gotten it. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Are you tracking with me, folks? So why do I start this new series about encounters with Jesus in this way? Simply put, to warn you not to be like Capernaum. Because you're going to glimpse and behold the glory of God's Son week after week for the next three or so months. And you don't want to miss the encounter with this Messiah. I challenge and encourage each one of us to behold and to believe in the sinless Son of God. Make sure you're following this Messiah, King Jesus. I exhort you who know him to reaffirm your love for him and your willingness to follow him. And I plead with you this morning, if you're here or you're watching and you don't know him, to trust him as your Lord and Savior because there is a day of judgment coming. And you want to be ready for that day. And so I think it's important that we actually start in Capernaum because there's many lessons for us here. Well, the account of the healing of the paralytic is found, again, in each of the synoptic gospels. The term synoptic simply means looking together or seeing together. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are the synoptic gospels. We find, again, the story in Matthew 9, verses 1 to 8, Mark chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, our primary text this morning, and Luke chapter 5, verses 17 to 26, if you'd like to study it later on. In addition, though, to witnessing Jesus' display of astonishing and remarkable power, and awesome popularity even, particularly for Luke's gospel story, it's important that I point out to you the note and the theme of rising tension and conflict behind Jesus' ministry at this time. Yes, Jesus' authority by the end of this remarkable scene, not only to heal a man's broken body, but more importantly, to restore a sinful man's soul is the point behind Mark chapter 2. You see, we see a paralytic physically being healed, but what we can't see is a sinful man being forgiven, and that is the heart of the story open before us this morning. Who is this man, Jesus? That's what Mark wants us to confront, that very question. Let me just point out quickly for you a few instances of this clash of authority between Jesus and those around him. First, immediately, and you're going to get to learn the word immediately quite a bit here in these next few weeks, immediately is Mark's, one of Mark's favorite words. It's employed, I think, 41 times in his gospel alone, and it quickens the action from scene to scene. Mark is wanting us to immediately encounter the Lord Jesus Christ. We are told in Mark 1:14 and following, now after John the Baptist was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. And saying, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus wastes no time in Mark's gospel. He emerges from his baptism in the Jordan and testing in the wilderness, full of divine authority and ready to announce the arrival of God's imminent kingdom. And to demand, not just ask, but to demand the people repent. Listen, Jesus himself is the kingdom. Where he is, there is God's kingdom. And so immediately we find the authority of the kingdom arriving on the shores of the Galilee. 
Next, and this is going to be important a little bit later on, Jesus displays his awesome authority by calling four men. Now, you're going to know these guys' names. Actually, two sets of brothers who lived in the city of Capernaum, Simon Peter and Andrew, who were brothers, and James and John, who were brothers, who eventually became some of the most prominent disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus calls four brothers, two sets of brothers, from their vocation, of course, as fishermen, they're around the Sea of Galilee, to fishing for men and his, as his disciples. And again, we're going to come back to those guys in just a few moments. In the very next scene, Mark chapter 1, verse 21, Jesus' own teaching authority is put on display and highlighted. Mark chapter 1, verse 21 says, And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one, notice, who had authority, and not as the scribes. Well, this no doubt perked the attention of those Ivy League religious elite scribes, and they were not too pleased with Jesus after that. But Mark goes on, for right there in the synagogue at Capernaum, a man with an unclean spirit comes up to Jesus and calls out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Mark 1.24. Have you come to destroy us? Notice what this spirit says. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. By the way, in Mark's gospel, it's the people who shouldn't know who Jesus who do know who he is, and it's the people who should get who Jesus is who haven't the foggiest idea who he is. It's Mark's irony all throughout the story. It's really, really fascinating. Mark chapter 1, verse 27 says, and they were all amazed at this, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding Galilee. Now we're going somewhere with this. Stay with me. Leaving the synagogue, Jesus then immediately enters the house of Simon. Again, this is Simon Peter, Jesus' disciple at this point. It's probably, I believe, the same house where the paralytic is healed. And Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law who lay ill with a fever. At once, Jesus' authority over now disease is put on display. Mark chapter 1, verse 31. And he, came back, and he came and took her, that is Peter's mother-in-law, by the hand and lifted her up and the fever left her and she began to serve them. I'm stacking these authority clash scenes together so that you can get Mark's point. What is his point? Who is this guy that demons and disease and teaching cannot confront him? Who is he? That's exactly the point that Mark wants you as the reader of his gospel to wrestle with. He's unlike anyone we've ever encountered. He's somebody you must reckon with. That's who Jesus Christ is. Well, listen, word about Jesus quickly gets out. And the very next thing you know, verse 33 of chapter 1, the whole city was gathered together at the door of Peter's house. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. Jesus is a rock star. He's a rabbi, but he's a rock star, rock star and people want to be near him such that he is sent out into desolate places. We read about that in just a moment. All of this, all of this is important background information, particularly about the issue of authority when we come to Mark chapter 2 verse 1. 
Jesus' power and popularity had forced him away from Capernaum, his home base, into the surrounding cities of the Galilee, where he continued to preach in the synagogues and to cast out demons and to heal many diseases, and people were thronging to him. During this interval, probably a few weeks between uh, the healing in Peter's house and the healing of the paralytic in Peter's house, uh, we read in verse 45 of Mark chapter 1 that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places, and the people were coming to him from everywhere. The early days of Jesus' earthly ministry was full of power and full of popularity. That's Mark's point. Jesus' authority is on full display. And conversely, Jesus' opposition, the scribes and the Pharisees, their attention was well on the rise as well. We are spoiling for a conflict when we come to Mark chapter 2, verse 1. And here we read. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days... It was reported that he was at home. Now, literally, the word here is he was in the house, not his house. I think it was Peter's house. And again, many were gathered together so that there was no room, not even at the door. And notice he was preaching the word to them. If you could perform miracles, wouldn't you be tempted just to show off your wonders rather than really doing what? the kingdom of God is all about, and that is connecting people back to the heart of God with his word. Don't miss this huge statement. I think there's a huge lesson of discipleship for us here. Jesus is home. The house is full of people, perhaps 50 people or more pressing into this small ancient Jewish dwelling with many more people at the door and crowded around outside, peering in through the windows, trying to listen to what Jesus is saying. And what does he do? He doesn't turn into a showman. He's a preacher. He preaches the word to them. The crowd came, I think, in large part to have their friends healed, but really to see a show. Jesus, though, gives them the word of God. There's a huge application even for our life as disciples and as a church today. And it's this. The ministry of the gospel, the work of, the G- of Jesus' church, is one of both compassion as well as conviction. It is one of both healing and speaking. Our ministry is not either or, it is both and. A ministry that seeks to meet people's physical needs, but also a ministry that seeks to meet people's spiritual needs with teaching and with compassion. The word, word, in Mark's gospel concerns the proclamation of the imminent and available reign of God through personal trust in the death, resurrection, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is the gospel of the kingdom. And what do you see just a few years later, fast forward in your minds, a few years later, is recorded for us in the book of Acts that Jesus' spirit-indwelt, spirit-empowered disciples are demonstrating both compassion for physical suffering and conviction by declaring God's truth, such that we read in the book of Acts chapter 3, Peter and John are healing at the temple, preaching and healing. 
Even when surrounded by a large crowd who were undoubtedly clamoring for miracles, Mark tells us here that Jesus resolved to preach the very word of God to them. May we be just the same. Not content with a show, but giving people the very word of God. Mark chapter 1 verse 38 says, And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. He came to preach the good news. Now listen, this narrative, you'll notice, is really divided. Mark chapter 2 is divided, the first 12 verses, into two parts. Mark 2 verses 1 to 5 simply set the stage for this display of divine authority by focusing on Christ's compassion to the paralytic. It's a scene full of radical faith, of humbling truth, and genuine compassion. However, Mark 2, verses 6 to 12, as we will soon see, develops Mark's big point, which uh, is the point behind the controversy and the confrontation behind Jesus and his rivals, and that is his authority, unlike any other human being, to actually forgive sins. That's the point behind the story. So, let's dig in. Right here in the middle of Jesus' sermon, notice that out of the clear blue, or rather out of the brown clay above his head, the thick branches just above Jesus' head, we see all of a sudden a little light appear. And then a shape begin to descend as dirt and debris fall all around the Lord Jesus. And it is a paralyzed man being lowered down in the presence of Christ by his four friends. Just picture the scene. Mark paints it beautifully for us. Mark 2, verse 3, notice. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic, carried, again, note this part, by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, literally the word is child, your sins are forgiven. Now, I missed my chance last February to preach this sermon. Go ahead and throw that next uh, picture up. Many of you who were with us at that time remember that one of our subcontractors as we were building the new building fell through the roof, or almost fell through the roof, right here in the sanctuary, almost to his death. It was a terrifying, terrifying morning, particularly for that young man. Uh, He made it halfway through the ceiling uh, and caught himself on the the, uh, horizontal joists with his arms, and his buddy up there was able to uh, hoist him out. But you see the debris uh, and the wreckage from his falling through. I thought it would just have been the perfect Sunday to preach this particular (laughs) sermon. We could have lowered Joel Reedy right down through the ceiling, and it would have been awesome. But I missed the chance, but I got the photographic evidence, and this is my chance to use it. So picture that, but in a radically different and older way in a first century house. There's so much going on in this scene, so much going on. I want to start not with the paralytic, but with his friends. Let's start there because I think there's actually a big, big point to the radical faith of his friends. The fact of the matter is we don't know how many friends were involved in this scene. If you watch the news these days over in Israel or Palestine and you see 
uh, a bomb go off and you see crowds of people gathering the wounded and carrying them to help, it's not just one or a few. It's masses, hordes of people trying to help the wounded. I think that's what was going on. It was a massive crowd trying to desperately get this paralytic into the presence of Jesus. But interestingly, Mark says, unlike Matthew 9 and Luke 5, that there were four friends who lower him down. And I think Mark is telling us something for a reason. You got to picture what this house would have been like. It would have been a one-story structure. The roof on this house almost certainly would have been flat and consisted of several layers. There's stone and there's wood on the vertical, and then there's several layers of sticks and thatch and then several inches thick of clay that has been rolled over this roof. And that's the the structure that we're dealing with. Outside of the structure would have been an outdoor staircase, without a doubt, that you could ascend to get on top of the roof, because this was actually a prominent feature of the house. Um, In a a warm uh, Middle Eastern summer night, you might even sleep on top of the house to get relief, or certainly entertain friends on top of the house. This is what we should picture in our mind, and somehow these men have gotten a paralyzed man onto the roof, and they're ready to do business. They can't get to Jesus any other way, and so they make a direct line right down to him through the roof. They get up there, and they begin to rip the roof apart. They haven't checked with the insurance agency to see if it would be covered. Uh, They're not uh, worried about the cost. This is a radical display of compassion. A radical display, what I call costly compassion and courage. Whatever it takes, whatever it costs, we'll deal with that later on. What what needed right now is this man needs to be in the presence of Jesus. Now, these guys aren't disciples of Jesus. They've just seen what he's done for other people. And I think that's also important. But there's a lesson about discipleship that I think Mark is tucking away right here in the text. Why does Mark point out four men? Matthew doesn't. Luke doesn't. Mark does. Why? Well, somebody might say, well, one for each corner of the mat, Pastor Dan. Don't overthink it, right? Three guys, he would fall off. I don't think it's that simple. I think there's a point for Peter, Andrew, James, and John. Four disciples in the story of Mark's gospel have already been called to follow Jesus. But when we come to Mark chapter 2, it's not those guys who we know as the early apostles. It's other guys for other men that are bringing this paralyzed man into the presence of Jesus. And I think there's actually a stinging point for would-be disciples when we let other people do our job. It's our job to get people in the presence of Jesus Christ, not other people's job. This is a classic Markan point. In his gospel, again and again, outsiders act like insiders, and insiders, disciples, act like outsiders. In other words, those who don't, who shouldn't be professing Christ. A demon is the first person to say that you are the son of God in Mark's gospel. A Roman soldier is the last person to say that he's the son of God at the crucifixion of Jesus. Disciples are constantly wondering who this man is. It's Mark's subversive story. He's teaching us that discipleship is countercultural. It's it's upside down living. And it's exactly what is going on. So listen, from one angle, and maybe I'm wrong, I don't think that I am. The healing of the paralytic was simply an initial introductory lesson on the radical lengths or better heights 
We are to call to go as Jesus' followers to bring broken people into the presence of the one who heals their lives. Do you get that point? Do you follow that point? Knowing Peter like we do, I imagine that his face got a little red and flushed, if, particularly if it was his own house. And he was beginning to do some mental math of what this was going to cost and all of those sorts of things. But eventually Peter got it. Peter got maybe the subtle rebuke that he should have been the one getting this paralyzed man in the presence of Jesus. Again, our job is to bring people into Jesus' presence. I say that Peter got it because he's the first preacher of the gospel after the resurrection. Peter's the first miracle worker with John in Acts chapter 3 at Solomon's portico. Peter eventually got it. Do you get it? Do you get what your calling is as a Christian? Not to be enamored or to be overwhelmed and, wow, Jesus loves me, but to be radically oriented in faith to get other people into his presence. That's what we're called to do and to be. Discipleship fundamentally is about helping other people come to follow Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what we see here. So what about the paralyzed man? Let's move on for just a few moments here this morning. What can we learn from him? Well, it's interesting to me, again, in Mark's gospel, and the details matter, friends, when you're studying God's word, we are told not once and not twice, but five times that he is a paralytic. Mark uses that word five times in 12 verses. He is a paralyzed man. The word literally means that he was afflicted with paralysis. If a, a very strict translation would be he was loosed on one side. Maybe he was a quadriplegic. Don't know. Maybe he was just had half of his body paralyzed. We really don't know exactly. But the point is his body was broken. And he became identified with his outward brokenness. Oh, he's the paralyzed man. Oh, you mean the, paralyzed, the paralytic. It was his identity. This was obvious to, er to everyone. He was a cripple. He couldn't walk. He couldn't go anywhere in town. He had no shot at getting in Jesus' presence when Jesus was going on his healing spree. He was very likely, as a result, poor and destitute as a consequence. The point I think we are to draw is that the man descending from the roof in Peter's house was the epitome of all mankind descending into alienation from Almighty God. All men, apart from grace, are paralyzed. All men apart from grace, our bodies are broken. And more tragically, so are our souls. So then why upon seeing this man being lowered through the roof right in the middle of his sermon, and preachers do not like disruptions, just so you know, uh, after being impressed by the conviction and the ingenuity and frankly the sheer guts of this guy's friends, does Jesus simply say, verse 5, child, your sins are forgiven. I mean, some of us might be tempted to say, Jesus, don't you see what his big problem is? His body is broken. So why do you go for his soul? I think that's also part of what should punch us in this story. Two important things need to be said and remembered by us here. Firstly, the broken man's physical paralysis was a picture of his inner spiritual paralysis. Regardless of how desperate or how helpless his outward condition might have been, his greatest need on that day was not the ability to walk. It was the forgiveness of his sins. 
Listen to me this morning. You might be dragging yourself in a church today. You might be overburdened, overwhelmed with financial or relational or physical concern and trial. But all of that pales in comparison to your biggest problem. Apart from Jesus, you're a sinner under the judgment of God. You might need physical help, financial help, relational help, but more than anything else, you need spiritual help. And that's why you need to come to Jesus. In a sense, the healing of the paralytic is the story of how each and every one of us initially comes to Jesus. Paralyzed, gripped in sin, broken, helpless, and hopeless apart from Christ. You see, the man on the mat is actually me. The man on the mat is actually you, apart from Jesus. When people looked at the paralytic, they saw a broken man in need of physical healing, and he was that. But when Jesus looked at him, he saw an estranged creation. He saw a soul in need of rescue. And it should affect the way that we see people as well. The second thing we need to keep in mind here is that the story of the healing of the paralytic, just like your individual story of salvation or mine, is not primarily about us or him. It is not primarily about his need or ours. This story, make no bones about it, is about Jesus first. It's about Christ and his authority, not just us and our needs The really important point behind Mark chapter 2 is Jesus' unmatched authority not only to mend a man's body, but to heal a man's soul. That's the point of the story. All present brokenness in the world, be it physical brokenness or like disease and death or emotional, financial, relational issues, be it spiritual brokenness like sin, all brokenness is a reminder and a sign of our miserable condition under Adam. And the need for our grace, for God's grace in Christ. As one writer so eloquently put it, the story of the healing of the paralytic is the story of Jesus in miniature. It is the story of Jesus' authority to heal and to preach of the world's opposition and of Christ's vindication as the Son of Man. Mark chapter 2 is the gospel in a nutshell. You see, the most shocking element of this whole chaotic scene isn't the roof being ripped off. It's not even this paralyzed man's body being restored. The most shocking part of this entire scene is the gall of a Jewish carpenter in Capernaum being being bold enough to claim that he could renovate a man's soul. That's the most shocking part of this scene. Jesus' claim to be able to forgive a man of his sins is what should leave us stunned in silence. Look how Mark concludes the story as we conclude today as well. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? Again, this is not out loud. This is uh, mental speak, you might say. He is blaspheming, a religious crime, by the way, punishable by death, according to the law. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, notice what Mark says, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, 
Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, and then he pivots, and he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he arose, the paralytic that is, and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. And I bet they hadn't. Among the many onlookers in the house that day were a horde of unholy scribes and Pharisees. Luke's account notes in Luke chapter 5 that numerous Pharisees and teachers of the law from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem had come to see this miracle man in Capernaum. And to be perfectly clear, despite our present contempt for these religious leaders today, they were not wrong about their questions and about the categories of who was eligible to forgive men their sins. They were not wrong. As one writer has put it, they were asking the right question, but they were arriving at the wrong answers. To lay claim to God's exclusive prerogative to forgive sins is blasphemy, unless you're God. That's the point. You see, the big point in our passage is the question, who does this guy think he is? Who is this man who's mending broken bodies and healing sinful souls? If he's not who he claims to be, he is a joke at best, simply to be shrugged and laughed off. If this man claims to be able to forgive sins, but he can't, then the religious leaders are absolutely right. He's guilty of blasphemy and will be all well served to get rid of him as quick as possible. But what if he can? What if he can forgive sins? What if Jesus does have the power and the authority to forgive a man of his sins? Well, friend, then he is, Je- then he is God. And that's Mark's point. But how do we know can he, if he can forgive sins? Now you see why Jesus did what he did. To make things even more tense and complicated, how can somebody prove their ability to heal spiritually and inwardly? Well, Jesus, knowing the thoughts and intentions and rising questions within these religious leaders, ironically enough, he's reading their minds because he's God. It's sort of a funny little part of the story, too. He addresses their internal dialogue with an explicit and outward statement. Which is easier, guys, to say to this paralytic, this crippled man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And again, I think he pivots here to the paralytic. I say to you, son, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Somebody said in their commentary that Jesus takes the form of a rabbinic style, arguing from the lesser to the greater argument. In other words, if somebody can do the apparently harder act, then it proves his ability to perform the lesser difficult act. So which is harder, I ask you, to heal a man physically or to heal a man spiritually? To put another way, Jesus did the miracle that the religious leaders and others could see healing the paralytic's body. 
in order that all might know that he had done the other miracle that they could not see, heal the man's soul. Which is easier for a human being, to heal a man physically or to heal a man spiritually? That's a trick question because both are impossible. Both are impossible for a mere human man to do. But what if he's God? And now you understand Mark's point. Jesus is the Son of Man. This is a direct uh, allusion to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and verse 14. Jesus is the Son of Man. By the way, the Son of Man is Jesus' favorite self-title, really anywhere in the Gospels, but particularly in Mark's Gospel. I believe he uses it of himself 14 times in Mark's Gospel. It's either 83 or 84 times that Jesus is called the Son of Man in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And it's a title that indicates not mere humanity, but actual divinity and authority and power. Jesus is the expected Messiah of God. He is the one who has all authority and power and dominion. He's the one we've all been waiting for to put things and to put the world back together. He's the man we must deal with. Who is this man who shows up at the shore of Galilee healing bodies and claiming to forgive sins? He's the man that each and every one of us this morning must deal with. We must deal with. He is God's son. The healing of the paralyzed man, even more so than the forgiveness uh, of his sins, means that the son of man, God's appointed ruler, has come. He has come. He has divine authority. He is even God. The end of the scene is great. It's actually the beginning of a totally new era a new day for the race of sinful, crippled human beings like you and me to get up off of our mats, to have our souls forgiven, and to go home in God's grace. Mark 2 verse 12 says, And he arose and immediately picked up his mat and went out before them all, so that they all were amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. Matthew 9, 7 concludes by saying, And he arose, went home, and when the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. Luke puts it this way, And he immediately arose and went before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. So after this encounter with Jesus, what's different about you? The paralytic walked away from the scene restored and forgiven, physically and spiritually. The crowd walked away from this miracle amused and amazed, and some even praising the Son of God who had come to earth. The scribes and the Pharisees walked away from this encounter confused and not a little unsettled by the power that was breaking out around them. My question for you this morning is, how are you going to walk away from this encounter with the Messiah? Let's bow in prayer. Our Father in God, this indeed is our story. We are paralyzed in the grip of sin and rebellion. Until somehow, someway, with the assistance of others, we are brought into the presence of Jesus. And he looks at us with compassion and with authority. And he addresses not only 
the external, but he addresses the internal brokenness of our existence. Father, we pray this morning, if there is even one here who is encountering this Messiah, Jesus, for the very first time, I pray, O Lord, that they would see him with such awe and such authority that they come running. They come ready to receive his power and his authority. Oh, Jesus, I pray simply this, that in your resurrected and ascended power, you would continue to heal physical and spiritual lives even today through this preaching. And we will give you the glory for you're a God of all grace and all goodness, and you long to save souls even today. As we prayed in Jesus' name, amen.